Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we join acclaimed scholar Sheikh Yahya Rodas, founding director of Al Makasid, discussing the Book of Contemplation, Book 39 of the Ishya Ulum al Din from the Fons Vitae Al Ghazali series. In his magnus opus, the 10th century Persian polymath Al-Ghazali explored the importance of reflection as an act of enrichment. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode explores the importance of contemplation in life and culture. Um, so even with the write-up that you've all been given, I don't want to disappoint anyone. I'm not really going to talk about the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle. Uh, in chapter 10, in, on, it is really about happiness and the life of contemplation and so forth. Um, but I think Imam Wazadi was trying to do something, you know, a little bit different here. And this book is very, very important. It's the penultimate book of the Ihya i.e. the book before the end. It's the 39th book of the Ahilu Medin. And I wanted to, because it's not widespread knowledge, really spend uh, a few minutes, hopefully it'll only be a few minutes, touching on a few points to help us frame uh, our study and approach to Imam Ghazali's Ihya, his revival in general, uh, but in particular, book 39. And it requires that we know a little bit about it. Now, some of those in the audience won't need this. Um, it might be understood to you already, but I don't think, I don't want to assume that everybody's at the same level. And I think the, the starting point really has to be Imam al-Ghazali's commitment to tajdeed, renewal, and how he articulated that with his unique conception of the ilm tariq al-akhirah. And we'll explain what that means in a moment. And so we have to understand a little bit about tajdeed, about renewal. And this ultimately stems from a hadith of our Prophet ﷺ, where he said that Allah will send to this community at the turn of every century. Someone, or you could translate as those. Men here in the Arabic language could be translated in the singular but actually, when you peruse the scholarly commentaries, it really seems that the majority actually believe that the Mujaddid was not just one person. It was a group of people. And you might have the renewer under whom there are a number of other people that are renewing at various levels in different places, in different areas or arenas. And so that... Allah will, dis dispatch, Allah will send to this community at the turn of every century, one, or those who will renew religion for it. This is the foundational hadith. And if we look at the early interpretations of this, which would then form the later scholarly views on what tajdeed was, it essentially gets back to the following. It's to the purpose of the mujaddid, is to combat religious deterioration and assure the continuance of the religion in the absence of the prophet by contextualizing and understanding the understanding and practice of the of each 
subsequent period in which that he will come. Um, so, in other words, is that the whole purpose of the Mujaddid is not only to preserve the religion in the time that they are sent, but also to be a means for people to internalize its realities. And so, there's a difference clearly between reform and between tajdid. And even the word itself is, we commonly translate as renewal, uh, but and actually the, the better word for it in Arabic would be renovate. If you look at its Latin root, it literally means to make new again, which is what tajdid means. Uh, but commonly referred to it as renewal, so we'll just keep it uh, at that for now. So the whole point here is, is that Imam al-Ghazali states in the beginning of the Hayal al-Madin that this is the whole purpose of the work. And I want to quote him in what he says here. So he says, as for the science of the path of the hereafter, the al akhirah and that which the righteous forebears, the Salaf al-Salih, pursued in which Allah, glory be to him, in his book called Understanding, Wisdom, Brightness, Light, Guidance, and Reason, it has become occluded among humankind and been completely forgotten. As this was a fissure that had appeared in the edifice of religion in a black situation, I saw the importance of devoting myself to composing this book to revive the religious sciences, to revealing the ways of the early leaders who have gone before, and to make plain the branches of knowledge that the prophets and the righteous forebears deemed beneficial. So Imam al-Zadi, of course, is living in the fifth century, and then he dies in the first part of the sixth Islamic century. And just think about how the borders of Islam had spread at that point, and the knowledge of various civilizations that they had for several centuries then had access to. This is that well after the famous Beit al-Hikmah House of Wisdom, and that all of this whole process that, is, that it was transpiring to that in that translate different texts from different languages, from different civilizations. And there was a lot more that they had, were exposed to than in the earlier period by the time of Imam Ghazali. And with that also came a lot of challenges. So if we fast forward to our time now in the age of information and everything that we're exposed to now, and how that the average person now is exposed to in one week roughly to what other people were exposed to an entire lifetime. And having a significant less amount of knowledge and ability to make sense of all of that and to understand it from a worldview of Tawheed. You can imagine then the fitna, let alone young men and women being thrown out and cast into the den of lions or that into the open forest of wolves without any protection and any grounding in their religion, being exposed to very complicated ideas and expected to then make sense of them. If you think about this, it's, it's ludicrous. It actually tells about the resilience of people of Iman that there's not more problems in relation to the faith of the upcoming generation, making sense of all of this. So this is one of the amazing things about the Ihel al 
is that its principles are just as relevant now as we speak as they were in previous times. And in particular, this idea of the in tariq al-akhirah. This was a part of the genius of Imam Ghazali. And increasingly, more and more has been written upon this in the academic world, and some of it actually is very helpful in what he had the ability to do. This is a unique conception. And Imam Ghazali knew that he was the mujaddid. And we don't know exactly how he knew, but he seems to have had a relationship with the righteous or saw something in and of himself because he speaks to this reality of him being the mujaddid. And it was by that virtual, that scholarly consensus that he was the mujaddid of the fifth Islamic century. And not people who came before him or, or that came after him didn't tend to make that claim to be the mujaddid. And we say claim here, we don't mean in a negative sense because uh, if someone's been commanded to that manifest, then they have to obey the command, even though the asal is idfan nafsaka fi al khumul, supposed to bury yourself in the earth of obscurity. But if you've commanded, been commanded, uh, with a very clear ishara and indication, either on the tongue of a rightly guided teacher or in some powerful indication that you yourself as witness, you have to obey. And what he does essentially is when he surveys his time and his primary attack is of the scholars of his time who fail to put their knowledge into practice that have a lot of knowledge but don't really represent what it means to live the realities of Islam. And then by extension, what he would have called people of bid'ah, and some people's innovations even take them outside of the fold of Islam. And then it could be extended though to all other types of people. So even though Imam Ghazali is primarily attacking the scholarly class of his time and their formalistic tendencies, his principles that he developed, which were a part of his tajdeed, his renewal, and his unique conception of imtariq al-akhirah is just as relevant now as it was then to every aspect of our life. And this is so important because this is minhajiyah, this is methodology. And this is one of the things that I've noticed in the short time that I've been involved in teaching and interacting with community and especially young people, is that people are in need of a methodology. You and I need to have an approach to religion that can withstand time. Some people are fine when they're in the early years. Other people get caught up and then come back. But then other people, their problems come when they enter into college. For other people, it's when they get married. For some people, it's when they have children. For some people, it's when they have teenage children. For some people, it's when they go through a divorce later on in life. For some people, falling victim to that these phenomenon like midlife crisis or whatever else. For some people, they're fine until they actually get sick in their 40s or in their 50s. Different people go through different challenges at different times, but we need to have an understanding of religion that withstands the test of time, that equips us to respond to the vicissitudes of life, however they may manifest, whatever stage that might be. And only true, authentic, traditional, classical Islam, whatever it is that you want to do, that whatever word you want to use to describe it, can do that. 
only real Islam can do that. Is that if it's part of the story, it's going to break down at some point. One of the common that threads of the people of innovation is that they cherry pick and they take this, but they don't understand the part in light of the whole. The true people of religion understand the whole and then they understand the heart, the parts vis-a-vis the whole. They read the Quran in its entirety. They understand, excuse me, the guidance of the Prophet in its entirety. And alhamdulillah, we have these individuals to articulate to us in any given time the quintessence of what it means to put the kitab and the sunnah into practice. What it is that we focus on, what it is that we don't focus on. And this is, of course, in light of the changing circumstances of the time in which we live. That our Prophet referred to very clearly, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he said, The rungs of the ladder of Islam will break, rung after rung. Every time that a rung breaks, people will <coughs> cling to the one after it. The first to break will be governance. The last will be prayer. So you can then that put together what are the other rungs between governance and prayer in succession. And then that use this as an interpretive tool to understand Islamic history and how things actually broke down little by little and at what time. But the point here is, is that what Imam Ghazali does is that, and this is why the Ihrilum al-Din is not only his greatest work, it's in a sense a type of religious manifesto for this ilm tariq al-akhirah, the science of the way to the hereafter. And it was genius what he did. It's a unique conception as we mentioned but he draws from ilm al-kalam, from theology, he draws from fiqh, he draws even from philosophy, which to me, that just shows why he was such an incredible liminal figure that had this perfect balance between aql and naql, the rational sciences and the transmitted sciences. And he naturalizes a lot of concepts that were previously used in very different that ways into a seamless presentation of the science of the way to the hereafter that he equates to being the way of the Salaf. It's amazing. And when you start even scratching the surface and understanding what he did, and no one can claim that they really understand what he did. As much as the academics like to superimpose their view on things and look at but you're never going to fully understand his mind. Because in order to understand his mind, it's not just his mind, it's also his heart, because a lot of this is inspiration. You, you can't do it. You can only understand parts of it. And this is why that from the Ba'adwi tradition, Muhammad Aydurus al-Akbar, called the Ihalameen the Ujubatu Zaman, the prodigy of its age, the wonder of its time. And this is why some of them said, Kadid Ihya and Yukuna Quranan. It is almost as if the Ihya is a Quran. It's not a Quran, it's not a divinely revealed book, but it's an amazing book. And one of the most beautiful stories is where there's a, that someone saw a dream and 
that Imam Subki mentions this in his tabaqat, and that in it, that there's a conversation between Imam Ghazali and the Prophet Musa And the Prophet Musa asks him his name. He says, my name is Muhammad ibn Muhammad, Muhammad ibn Ahmad al-Ghazali. And he looks at the Prophet and says, I asked him his name, and he starts to give me his lineage. And then Imam Ghazali looks at the Prophet and says, should I respond or should I remain silent? The Prophet said, respond. He said, Moses, when Allah asked you what was in your right hand, you didn't say, Hiya Asaya. You didn't just say that it was my staff. You said, Hiya Asaya, Attawakku Aliha, Wa Hushu Biha Ala Ghanami, Wa Lathiha Ma'arib Ukhra. It is my staff. I that use it to lean on. I tend to my sheep with it. And I have other uses as well. Mm. Then he realized, okay, this one is different. And then the Prophet says, and looked at. Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Isa, who was also in the dream, said, Do you have a scholar, the likes of him, in any one of your two communities? Imam Ghazali was a great imam. But this is the brilliance of what he did. And why his book is so relevant is that the meanings of tajdeed he encapsulated in this ilm tariq al-akhir, a science of the way of the hereafter, which is really a methodology or you could even say in a more fancy way, a teleological discipline, right? A teleological discipline, which that means simply is it focusing on the end. This is ultimately about preparation to meet our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you cannot understand the Ihya al-Muddin without understanding the importance of in tariq al-Akhirah. It is the thrust of the entire Ihya, every book, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. And so if that's the case, then just doing an academic study of the book, you can see why, that according to what Imam Ghazali himself is doing becomes a little bit problematic. Nevertheless, this is also reflected in its structure, which again, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but it's important to before we get to it being about book 39. And that there's a four-part structure to the Ihya. Because Imam Ghazali says, Ilm tariqat akhirah breaks down into two. Ilm al-Mukashafa and Ilm al-Mu'amala. The knowledge of unveiling, which he clearly states, is he's not going to get into when it comes to the Ihya. Although, he can't hold himself back at certain points. And this is why of the four key features of the Ihya, that it's integrative nature, it's systematic nature, it's encyclopedic nature. The fourth aspect of it is, is it's mystical nature is that he has these, some people call them sense of gnosis, uh, that other people call them that glimpses, that you could also call it a mystical thread. He does take these tangents, where in many of the books that he'll start talking about knowledge that is really knowledge that came to him by way of inspiration, by way of unveiling. And then he will tend to say, now I have to pull back the reins and get back to what it is that I need to be speaking about. Mm. And there's numerous examples of that. And he's doing this, though, consciously. He didn't omit that. And part of that is so that you and I can understand the fruit at the end of the path while we are treading it. This is what it leads to, because he clearly says, is that the ulum and mukashafa, this is the goal. Knowledge that comes from Allah directly, that's knowledge that is sought for in and of itself. And that's how he defines ilm al-mukashafa. Knowledge that is sought for in and of itself. 
The second part of in tariqat akhirah sciences we hear after is what is called ilm al-mu'amala and knowledge of practical dealings. Yani, there's a number of dry ways you could translate that. Uh, require a bit of unpacking to get to the heart of what he's trying to say. But this is the practical religious dimension. This is what it is that you can do to receive unveiling and that knowledge that comes directly from the presence of Allah. And he says this breaks down into two parts, each of which breaks down into a further two for four. So the structure of the Ihya reflects the Imtariq al-Akhirah. And in general, the first quarter after the first and most important, that part of that, which is the book on knowledge, where he lays down the foundations for the remaining parts of the book. He then gets into the book on creed, and then he'll start to get into the ibadat. He'll talk about tahara, he'll talk about prayer, he'll talk about uh, that fasting, and then zakat, and our zakat, and then fasting, and then hajj, and then the Quran, and and then he ends the first quarter, then he gets into the second quarter, which tends to be our social duties and our interactions with other people. Um, and then that represents the first half. That's the outer dimension of ilm al-mu'amala. Then the inner dimension also breaks down into two. But here it's really important because this is a part of his technique in that being a champion for ilm al-akhir, it's reflected in its structure. Now the progression is from book 21 on with the heart. And it is cyclical in the sense, it's meant to be read and reread, read and reread. And in the Ba'adi tradition is the Imam al-Aydrus, who was the first one to really appropriate the Ihya like he did uh, amongst the Ba'alwi, that taught it 25 times to his younger brother, Sheikh Ali. That both Imam al-Aydrus and Sheikh Ali were married to the daughters of Imam Umm Mihdah, one of the great Imams. He only had four, he had four daughters. And that Imam al-Aydrus married Sayyida Aisha and Imam uh, Sheikh Ali married Sayyida Fatima. And he passed away 30 years after his brother in 895. And this is a part of his project of promulgating the Ihya. He wanted to make sure that this became a staple part of their tradition. And 25 times, each time that he would finish it, he would invite, have an enormous celebration where he would feed people. So he wanted society at large to know the importance of this. Because the narration has it is that when they wanted to compile something to leave for their progeny, they sufficed themselves which was with what was in the Ihya. And it wasn't the complete story, it was appropriated into their tradition, uh, but it serves as kind of like a mirror to their particular conception of religion, as well as their views on the science of Tasawwuf and the path to Allah Taala. But one of the reasons that they focus so much on the Ihya as opposed to other books, because they read the Awadah Ramarif al Suhrawadi, they read the Risadat al Kushayriya, they read Qutul Qulub and many others, some of the predecessors to Imam Ghazali. But it was this Ilm Tariq al Akhi that was so important to them. And this cannot be understated enough. If we talk about this and continue to talk about this, there is such a secret here that if we bring this into our life and we understand it the way Imam Wazari wants us to do, with what he's given us in works like the Ihya and some of its abridgments and books that came after, they're also part of his project of tajdeed, of renewal. 
everything of our life will change. Our approach to family will change. Our approach to friends will change. Our approach to career will change. Everything around us will start to change. So I wanted to mention that as a way of introduction. And then having said that, we can move a little bit more now into the actual book itself. So book 39 of the Ahiyonumadin comes in the fourth quarter. And so the first half we said was more outward knowledge. The third quarter is dealing more with the destructive vices, although he that uh, starts it with a topic uh, discussing the heart and then how to discipline the soul and break the two desires just comes after that. But in the fourth quarter, you start to get into the munjiat, the saving virtues. And this is where he prevent, pre presents his understanding of what are known about the maqamat al-yaqeen, the stations of that certainty. And the ulama and the scholars of the science have different breakdowns for this. Imam al-Zadi offers his. And this, the climax of this is in book 36, where he starts to talk about that mahabba, kitab al-mahabbati was shoki wal unsi, wal unsi was shoki wa rida. And how the whole goal of this whole matter is love, is to love Allah and then to become beloved to Allah. And everything that comes after the station of love i.e. intimacy, being intimate in the meanings of remembrance, longing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and everything that we are taught to long for. And then the station of rida, of contentment, which is the highest station of all. And that it is, that is the station which is the secret of maximizing the edemic potential that lies in the heart of every single human being and that exponential increase that leads to that a perpetual gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hereafter. And so what Imam Muzari says essentially about rida is, if Allah bestows his contentment upon you, is that it leads to you receiving a perpetual gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah. And that's why it's such a lofty thing to seek. Nothing is greater than that. min Allahi akbar. And the contentment of Allah is even greater. And then after book 36, Imam Ghazali has two other books before he gets to the Kitab al-Tafakkur. He has a book on Kitab al-Niyati wal-Ikhlasi wal-Sidq, which is really important. And really understanding the placement of each of these is sometimes a little bit difficult. You can't necessarily say anything definitive. But then he also includes that the book on muraqaba and muhasaba, on vigilance and taking the self to account. And the general thing that you could say is that some might even include that, uh, that sincerity from amongst the stations of certainty. But even if you don't, um, it's something that underlies everything that is that we have to do. And then even if you're in that state, you have to continuously be in a state of vigilance and move up to a state of mushahada and take yourself to account. So that's something that you have to also do. But then he reaches book 39, which is the Kitab al-Tafakkur. And this is the book that comes before the very end of the Ihya. And one of the things that people have shown 
is how there is a progression in the Ihya al-Madin. And book 39, books 39 and books 40 are not like appendices that he's just kind of including at the end. They represent the culmination of the spiritual path. And so the idea is that when you're going through the Ihya, every book that you study, and again, the Ihya is large, depending upon the print, it's multi-volumes. And when it's printed in four volumes, the volumes are thick, and the pages in the print are small, and the pages are big. And you're progressing, and you're shedding all of these aspects of your ego in the process, that you are refining yourself, you are establishing correct belief and correct practice internally within of your own self in terms of your worship and then with other people and you're ridding yourself and polishing your heart of all of the vices and then you're adorning it with the virtues and as you move is that you you keep attaining more and more of what you need to attain and we get to the kitab of tafakkar and we're going to come back to it but then book 40 is on death it's the book on the remembrance of death and the hereafter and this represents ultimately the meaning with Allah. And so this is why it's cyclical in some sense, is that it's meant to be read over and over again like this. And ultimately, when you go back to book one, you're ultimately preparing yourself for book 40, which is the meeting with Allah Ta'ala. And then deep reflection upon death, preparation, understanding the realities of the hereafter, and so forth and so on. So this is something that was consciously a part of what you could call the architecture of Imam Ghazali's Ihya. And so he has a whole chapter on tafakkur. Even though he speaks about tafakkur, and as Sidi Muhammad Isaway mentions, tafakkur could be translated as contemplation, it could be translated as uh, deliberation, it could be translated as reflection. There are that different ways that you could translate this. But he will, will look through what he says here now about what its reality really is. It's one of the very, very, very important acts of worship that is foundational to the spiritual path, that is a part of the culmination of the spiritual path as well and the true preparation for what is to come. And this is something that has to be a staple part of you and I's religious practice. So we don't want to kind of just come together today and just talk about this. That's not the purpose in my mind. Yes, we want to talk about this in a way where we become convinced that, okay, I'm actually going to buy a copy of that, not for the sake of just buying it, but I want to start to live these realities because this is a manual. This is meant to be a manual not just because it's a, that interesting subject and it's that thought-provoking and stimulating. This is meant to be put into practice. And that Sidi Muhammad Isawadi beautifully in his introduction talks about some of those who came before Imam Ghazali, in particular Imam al-Muhasabi, that Abu Talib in Mecca, and some of their contributions to this reality of tafakkur so you could say tafakkur or fikr, and um, contemplation or reflection. And just as there were people who came after him, radiallahu anhu, and added, made their own contributions to tafakkur. But 
Imam Ghazali in some ways has a unique presentation of reflection and contemplation. And he actually even points to this in his work. And the way this book begins, as normally the books of Imam Ghazali do, is it's with a dibaja. And it begins with very flowery, rhyming prose. And that his dibajas, these introductions, are very important and you can learn a lot from them. And actually it's kind of like a synopsis of everything that's going to come. And a, a synopsis in the form of articulating the core that parts of the topic that he's going to address. And this is one of the that shorter books, it's not that long, and doesn't actually have too many chapters. But after his introduction, the next thing that he then wants to do is, as he does throughout, and this is a part of his, that systematizing is how the system, uh, the, uh, uh, the aspect of, the, the systematic aspect of the Ihya, where he wants to begin with verses of the Quran and then moves to that a hadith of our Prophet and then reports of the Salaf of the early generations. But he starts by saying is that it has been that narrated that tafakkuru sa'atan khayrun min ibadati sinna. That reflecting or contemplating for a period of time, a sa'a, is better than that worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for an entire year, which is really deep. And if we look at some of the other narrations, that there's another hadith that says, fikratu sa'a khayru min ibadati sittina sana. Contemplating, reflecting for an hour, a period of time. Doesn't mean 60 minutes, a period of time is better than 60 years of worship. And there's even another narration that in the Musnad al-Firdaus of al-Daylimi, tafakkuru sa'atin fi ikhtilaf al-layli wa nahari Reflecting for a period of time on the alternation of the day and night. Khayru min ibadati thamanina sana is better than worshiping Allah for 80 years. And perhaps this is a reference to the words of Allah Ta'ala in the latter part of Surah Ali Imran. That those who remember Allah standing, sitting and on their sides, and then reflect upon the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so this is how he begins. And he'll start to introduce some words that he will later define. Words like tadabbur, and you might have heard that word before. Words like i'tibar, words like anadhar. And I'm not going to translate them now, those are going to come. We start talking about some of the subtle differences between them. But he says that reflection or contemplation is the miftah al-anwar. And Sidi Muhammad Isawai translate that is, translates that as, Reflection is the key to gaining illumination. The key to gaining illumination. And war is the plural of lights. 
in order to receive light in your heart. What is the miftah to receive that light? Atafakkur. So what is he saying right off the bat? That this is a spiritual practice. And I forgot to mention at the beginning, not only are we not really going to talk about how this relates to that, that Greek thought like that of Aristotle, it's out beyond the scope of us as well, especially that we're this far into it, uh, to also uh, talk about how this relates to meditation and things like transcendental meditation and that the way that other religions even view that meditation, how it's similar or different. And that one way to translate tefakkur is actually meditation, even though it has a, 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 that it conjures up in people's minds something that is foreign to Islam. If you just look at the word itself, it could work for translating it in maybe with a bit of explanation. But then he says, it's also the mabda al-istibsar. And the mabda of istibsar. So the basis for insight, the mabda is the starting point of something. Istibsar is where you start to see things clearly. So reflection is a means for light to come to the heart, which we all need. There's no spiritual path. There's no understanding truth from falsehood. There's no living right or living the realities of the religion without light. You need light in the heart. The light uh, in your heart to your spiritual state is like food to your physical body. Without it, you're weak. You're spiritually weak. Your spiritual immune system, which we tend to forget, we have a spiritual immune system. If you run yourself down and you don't sleep properly and you don't eat properly, your physical immune system becomes weak. And then you become susceptible to being sick. But your spiritual immune system can also become weak. You need to strengthen it. And that's strengthened by doing various things that bring light to your heart. So it's also the basis for insight. But what else? It's the shabakatul ulum. A shabaka is a net. It is the net for catching forms of knowledge, acquiring knowledge, um. receiving more knowledge. And the snare for trapping direct perception and understanding. But then he says, most of mankind are aware of its merit and importance. Maybe during his time. But in our time, people aren't even aware of that. But they are ignorant of its true nature, its fruits, where it should begin from. So we actually have a greater challenge. We have to that make a case for the importance of tafakkur in a time where people are too busy to do anything. People don't have time to think anymore. And if they do, the very first thing they do is grab your phone. And just think about how quick people have recourse to their phone. You wake up in the morning before you say, Alhamdulillah, first thing you do, before you even say the dua of waking up, you grab your phone. And then it... Right? As soon as the plane lands, and if it's for prayer, you have to text <laughs> someone fine. As soon as the plane lands, everyone, phones come out. Right? We're so distracted. We don't have time to actually sit down and think. We're in the rat race. But this is of the utmost religious importance, as we will soon see. So, essentially, what he's going to do after his introduction is he's going to talk about the merit of contemplation 
And the first thing he begins with is the verse that I quoted in Surah Ali Imran. And they think about the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then interestingly, what does Allah say right after that? Our Lord, you have not created this in vain. And part of what he's going to do at a later point, and we won't be able to go into all those details, but it's amazing, is that he's very interested in science. He's very interested in anatomy. He's very interested in that all these incredible creatures that Allah Ta'ala has created. He's very interested in the whole human being and what's in the heavens, what's on earth, and what's between them. As some of the greatest objects of reflection of all understanding, the wisdom of Allah Ta'ala and His creation, He actually has a separate book in Sidi Muhammad's way. He mentions this in his introduction. He translates the chapter headings of Al-Hikmah Fi Makhluqatillah. Wisdom in God's creation is one of the books of Imam al-Ghazali, where um, he takes parts of that and inserts it into the Ihyat and expounds upon it in more detail in that book. But it's actually really amazing. And how that in and of itself is a door for us as well, that if we are realizing what he's doing, to when we have levels of exploration that people previously didn't have, it should increase us in faith. It should increase us in wonder. Never should we let that mystique and awe go because we understand the means better. That awe and mystique should increase once you know how complicated things are and how amazing things are and how vast things are. That just because you can imagine that a that space shuttle moving to the point where then Earth is no longer visible, that somehow that, that means that we're not significant. No, that points to the vastness of our Lord and what he created, is that human beings are the center of the universe spiritually because we've been given consciousness. We never were forced to believe that we were at the center of the earth spatially. And much of Western history is the history of the breakdown of the great chain of being and the problem that traditional Christian doctrine got themselves into because of their beliefs that couldn't withstand the onslaught of the scientific revolution. We never had that problem. We never believed elliptical orbits were never a problem for us. They didn't have to be spherical. We didn't believe that we were the physical center of the universe. We're the spiritual center of the universe. And even though we're totally insignificant in terms of our size, if we actualize our servant to Allah and come to know Allah, we're the most significant of all beings. And the ruh of the alameen are the malaika, the, in, jen, the, in, the ents and the jinn, the humankind and the jinnkind. That's the ruh al-alameen. And the consciousness of the universe. And so, when we understand that, then we have a very different perspective on what is truly important. And there's a hadith here. How much time do we have before Q&A? 25 minutes. We've got a few minutes. So I just really love this hadith. And um, it's diving a little bit deep. I probably shouldn't do this because it's going to probably affect. Anyhow, I can't do that and then not tell you this hadith. <laughs> but this is, this is like one of my favorite hadith of all. So it's related by Atta. 
He says that I went one day, I and Ubaid ibn Umar, to Sayyidah Aisha, the wife of the Prophet And that look, they, they mention all these beautiful details in his narrations. So she spoke to us, and between her and I was there as a veil. This is how they used to speak to the Prophet's wives, was from behind a veil. And they used to teach them from behind. And she said, Ya Ubaid, what has prevented you from coming to visit me? And he said the words of the Prophet visit from time to time when you increase in love. And then Ibn Umar said that she, he then asked Sayyidah Aisha a question. Inform me of the most amazing thing you saw in the Messenger of Allah, from the Messenger of Allah. What a question, huh? <laughs> And look what the response, فبكت. She started to weep. His entire affair was amazing. And this is a hujjah upon all of the men in this room. What would your wife say if she was asked about the most amazing thing about you? Well, it wasn't really anything ever amazing, but... <laughs> The least worst thing that ever happened was, <laughs> this is a hujjah upon all of us. Look, I mean, she lived up close to him. And she's saying that saw him in his day-to-day, -day, when he was sleeping, when he was eating, all of the mundane aspects of life. Nothing is mundane with Rasulullah. Nothing is mundane when it becomes sacred by virtue of your heart and intention in connecting everything to your Lord. Every moment is sacred. Allah. And everything is sacred. If you have the right intention, you're with Allah. Kullu amri kana ajaban. But then she mentions something specific. He came to me on my night. And then look at the details. Hatta masa jilduhu jildi. The emotional intelligence. I don't really like to say that about the Prophet but he was aware at all aspects of intelligence. But he said, until his skin touched my skin. And then said, Zanini li Rabbi Azawajal that permit me to worship my Lord. Look at the prophet. He could have just come in and just start worshiping. But he made it a point to lay next to her, touch his wife, and connect with her emotionally, and then ask her for permission to worship Allah. He doesn't need anyone's permission to worship Allah. But this is how he was. Permit me to worship my Lord. And then in one narration, she says that, I want you to be near me but I prefer what you want over what I want. And then so he stands up and he makes wudu from my water skin and he stands and he prays. And he said he started to weep until his beard became wet and then he prostrated until that the ground that he was prostrated on became wet from his tears. And then he lied on his right side until Bilal, Bilal called the Adhan for Salat al-Fajr. And then it was said to him, why are you weeping? And Allah has forgiven all of your past and future sins. He didn't have any sins to begin with. Bilal said this. He said, Wayhak ya Bilal. Woe to you, O Bilal. May Allah have mercy on you, rather. That how can I not weep when Allah Ta'ala has revealed to me this night? And to the end of the verse. And he made this a sunnah every day you and I should be reciting. Once we wake up, it's sunnah. He used to recite it and look at the sky, but if you're indoors, you just recite it. Until the end.
of the verses of Surah Ali Imran. And in this narration, that Woe to the one who recites it but doesn't reflect deeply upon it. So this is really an amazing narration. And we know this was a practice of the Prophet Just as we know this was a practice of the Sahaba, Abu Dhar, one time someone asked his family what was his worship like? And she, his wife said that he would spend a good part of his time indoors in the corner of his home in a state of reflection and contemplation. In other words, this was something that the companions did. And you and I need to bring this into our lives. It's that important. We have to make the time for it. And now we'll understand in the tail end of this time we have together why. And this is one of the most important chapters of this book, is where he has the bayan haqiqat al-fikri wa thamarata. It's the exposition of the true nature in fruits of contemplation. And this is where, because of his previous scholarly training, he brings in, in a way that other people didn't do before, syllogistic reasoning and ways to use reflection to not just remind oneself of what they already know, but to put two cognitions together, what he calls ma'rifatain, so that it produces a third. And the classic example that he mentions here is in relation to this transitory life and the everlasting abode of the hereafter, knowing which one is superior. And he says that there are two means by way, by, way, by way someone can come to know this reality. Firstly, he may be told by someone that the afterlife is to be preferred to this life. Then adopt that opinion without gaining insight himself into the essence of the matter. And this is not a bad thing if someone has trustworthy sources and that is what you do, that's a good thing. But he's going to make the case that's still taqlid and translated here as imitative acceptance. But he says that can't be called direct knowledge. You have to go to a, another degree. The second means consists of taking cognizance firstly of the fact uh, that that which is more lasting is more worthy of preference and that the afterlife is more lasting. One then derives from these two cognitions a third cognition, namely that the afterlife is more merely of is, is more worthy of preference. And so one of the things that happens is when you take the time to reflect, especially in the way that he's doing here, it produces a hal, a state of your heart, by virtue of fixating your thought on an object of reflection for a particular period of time, just as it produces new knowledge that you might then be inspired with. And you'll be amazed at what people can do. You will be amazed. One of the things that retreats that we put on at Maqasid, one of the things that we always try to do is have reflection sessions. So after Salat al-Fajr, after reciting the word al-Latif, then we choose based upon the book of the Ihya that we're teaching, because uh, we, they all are centered around studying the, the succession of books of the Ihya, we choose an object of reflection. And there are people that have never done this in their life before, 
I'm kicking myself that we didn't like write down and record and then keep track of what everyone was saying. They've never reflected like in this way in their life ever before. And some of their reflections as if that they are awliya from previous centuries with incredible insights of books, things that you only read in books. I'm not joking. Men and women alike, young and old alike, in a very real way. So this is possible. It's a part of our fitrah. This is what we've been created to do. We have the faculty. We have to just use it. And so this is what happens when you reflect on these two cognitions and you bring them together, then they produce a third. And this is where he's going to start introducing a few terms. The word tadabbur, ta'amul, and tafakkur in Arabic, you can translate them slightly differently, and it doesn't mean that they necessarily match up with these words in translation, but they are all essentially pointing to the same thing. He says they're ibarat mutaradifa. And then it's a whole debate, are there really any synonyms in Arabic or not? Just set that aside for now. <laughs> they are, in general, the same meaning. They, have, they point to a similar meaning. And then you have two other words, um, like at-tadhakkur and i'tibar in nadar. He says that they're of slightly different meaning. But not getting that steeped in the, uh, the, the weeds here too much. The important thing here, but what he wants to say is, is that he makes a distinction between focusing on tadhakkur, which is remembering something, recollecting something, and between tafakkur, which is where now a new knowledge is produced. And the recollection relates more to a state that ensues, and the reflection and the contemplation relates more to knowledge. And so this is what he then says, um, is that the thamaratid fikr, the fruit of fikr, of contemplation, is both ulum and ahwal, knowledge and states. And then what he does in a very beautiful way is, he says there's five degrees here, and he walks you through how it happens. So the first thing is tadakkar, where you recollect. You bring two cognitions, two things you already know to your heart. And then you reflect deeply upon it. And then what happens is new knowledge is received. And then your heart in this third step is enlightened by that new knowledge. And then the fourth step is, is that your heart changes and transforms because of the light of that knowledge. And then the fifth step is, it leads to a change in your actions as a result of the previous process. And Sidi Muhammad Isaweli lays this out uh, in his uh, introduction uh, for people to, you can access it there on the page 24 where he says, thus, contemplation leads to knowledge, which leads to state, which leads to action, which leads to a better state. So this is something, a unique contribution, and there's no end to this. What we have to do then is take the process, start the process. And this is why he has this amazing chapter, and we'll bring this to a close now, that he translates as means and subjects for contemplation. In Arabic, bayan, Majadi al-Fikr, is an exposition. In the Majadi, 
the plural of which is mejra. And he chooses very carefully his terminology. A mejra literally is a channel or course. So part, and it's very hard to convey this, but part of the meaning of mejra is that it channels you in what he's saying from something that you already know to something that you don't really know yet. So it indicates that there's, it, it, it takes you on this path. And part of spending that time reflecting is even on things that you know. So something like death, which is one of the greatest objects of reflection. The more you reflect upon death, and our Prophet said, Remember often the ender of pleasures. And this is why even though it is one of the objects of reflection, he has a whole chapter and a whole book on it after this because of its importance. But the more that you reflect upon it, the more that you change internally, the more ready you will be for that moment. The more time that you spend alone is that the less lonely you'll be in the grave when you'll be all alone. If we can't get ourselves used to being alone and find a sweetness in being alone with no one else around, that the celebrity culture that we live in and the lights, camera, action, and all of, the, all of those, None of that's going to benefit us at all. doesn't matter what people say about you, the way that they praise you. None of that matters. right? Small, short cycles of prayer that you pray in the wee hours of the night, teaching elderly people the Fatiha, small acts of kindness, being good to your parents, doing things that no one else knows that you've ever done outside of the public eye. This is what really matters. Your heart with Allah is what matters. All of the else, everything else is a mirage. And teaching ourselves to get used to that and to find intimacy in the remembrance of Allah and being alone. Rabit al-Adawiyah did 7,000 khatams in her grave. She dug a grave and did 7,000 khatams down. Habib Muhammad bin Ahmad al-Mihdar, who's, Habib Ahmad Muhammad al-Mihdar, who's mentioned here, I believe, that did 8,000 in his grave where he's now buried. Before he even enters into the grave, he did 8,000 khatams. SubhanAllah. These people were prepared to go. This is why when you go to places like Tanin, and even though it seems like corona swept through, they didn't even want to talk about corona because they didn't want people to panic. They didn't want people to get anxiety over it. And these are people that are ready to die. And I went there in the heart of the pandemic, and subhanAllah, like almost everybody I talked to was like, you know, there's a lot of people that died. This is the qadah of Allah. It's the decree of Allah. These people are ready to meet their Lord. Right? They don't suffer when they lose loved ones because they already know that they're going to go at some point. They're going to be sad. They're human beings. That doesn't mean they're robots. But they've done the work. They've prepared for the meeting with Allah. And that's what this is all about. When we have those moments and he lays out for us the various things that we should reflect upon. The first is our own human qualities, acts of disobedience, acts of obedience, qualities that lead to perdition, qualities that lead to paradise and so forth. Reflecting deeply upon this and what we shouldn't do, what we should do. And then reflecting upon Allah Taala's creation in great detail he goes. And what you and I have to do then is put this into practice. And what I would say in closing is, 
I'm going to request before you, even though this is a book launch for this particular book, definitely purchase this. Um, but I want you to read first, I think it's chapter 8 of the book of assistance of Imam al-Haddad, where he summarizes the meanings of reflection in a very convenient way. And this is a little bit more technical. It's going to take you a little bit more time to understand it, but that's much more accessible. Read that and try to put it into practice immediately. And even if you can't do it daily, try to have two days a week at least where you spend 15, 20 minutes, even start with five minutes, fixating your mind on an object of reflection. One of the things that Imam al-Zadi or Imam al-Haddad mentions, and there's a lot of that, uh, that synergy between the two. And each one of those objects of reflection produce states of heart, just as it also produces knowledge, which is what ultimately we want, and this is integral to this whole idea of systematic preparation for the meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward Fans Vitang and Sister Aisha who's behind it for that, uh, that publishing this work and all of the effort that goes into it and Sidi Muhammad Isa Waili and everyone else who's contributed and may Allah ta'ala benefit through it immensely. And it may be an aid and a means for us to that put it into practice and Amen. to draw near to our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala in a way that is pleasing to him and as Imam Al-Zadi has outlined for us, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Ameen. Jazakallah khair, Shaykh. We will go to a short Q&A. Uh, so if you have any questions, you can raise your hand and then wait for the mic, inshallah. Um, Assalamu alaikum, Shaykh. Um, in the middle. I've just got a question in regards to reflection. So how do you distinguish between reflecting and sort of overthinking that can lead to like anxious and OCD kind of behavior and that kind of line of thought? Sure. Um, so it seems to me that those are two very distinct things, right? When we talk about reflection or contemplation, uh, we're talking about a, an act of devotion where you are thinking about one of these, for instance, objects of reflection that he mentions here. Um, so let's just say that you want to reflect upon uh, that something in Allah's creation, the bee, for instance, and you read up on the bee and you start to think about the wisdoms in the creation of the bee and all of the wonderful things that happens and all of the meanings and wisdoms that are, for instance, in the bee or anything else that Allah has created uh, or anything else that he's mentioning here. It's a, it's a conscious effort to fixate your thoughts on a particular matter, right? And again, it's an act of devotion. Now, what I understand, um, if I'm understanding you correctly about like overthinking is, um, there are different types of things that we might overthink. We might try to overthink a decision that we uh, have to make. We might try to overthink how we're going to respond to a particular problem in our life. Um, there are a number of different things that we might uh, overthink and that could um, get into what might be called analysis paralysis depending upon what is at hand. Um, and I think something that can be helpful here, and I don't, I don't know so far how this is necessarily related to OCD, but just in general, um, we have a sunnah of decision-making that is unparalleled, it's amazing. So they've mastered in the art of business, consultancy firms that have, have it down to a set number of factors. If someone wants to go into business, you hire them to analyze all of the factors of the markets that you're never gonna think about yourself. They're paid to do this. But they're limited because it's dunyawi. 
They can't tell you that if it was just pre-COVID that COVID was going to happen. They can't tell you about the future and what market is going to grow or to uh, that decrease or whatever else. Is that we're required to think everything through outwardly, but then through istikhara, we have access to that which otherwise, which we would never have access to with the mind alone. And that, of course, that relates to our having the ability what's called tafweed, assign our affair over to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, genuinely, authentically from the bottom of our heart and placing our trust in him and at the same time taking all of the means of trying to think things through ourselves, taking the advice of good people and then not getting into so it's a mistake in general unless we have to make a quick decision which sometimes we do indeed but it's a mistake to be too hasty in making our decisions just as it is a fault to not be able to make decisions and that being decisive is important and doing our best. And then once you make a decision with resolution and determination, you follow that. And then even if the outcome is not what you want it to be, it will be what's best for you. Because we believe that everything comes from the divine decree is what is in our own benefit. Um, I don't know if that's really getting to the heart of what you're asking. Uh, but if you're referring specifically to just uncontrollable thoughts and things of that nature and um, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, what do they call them, um, then that's, that has its own cure uh, where that is, is kind of its own thing, which is the realm of psychology. But I, I don't know if that's really what you're asking or intrusive thoughts, they're called, yeah. There's a way of, like if someone reaches a point where it's imbalanced, where there's intrusive thoughts or things when it comes to OCD, that has its own, there's its own psychological techniques there to deal with that. Assalamu alaikum. wa rahmatullah. How do we do this with our children? How do we do this with our children? Allahu Akbar, beautiful. Mashallah, it's so easy. We have to spend time with them. We have to take our kids out into nature and we have to introduce them to the world of plants, to the world of insects, to the world of bees. We have to introduce them to the, the world of nature. Nature, what, I mean, the Prophet, it's a hadith, it's a weak hadith, but a torab rabi'a subyan, that dirt is the spring of children. And parents should let their kids go outside and play in the mud and get dirty, and that, you know, children in the state of Fitra would much rather be outside with bugs and dirt and natural stuff than any devices if they're still holding on to that Fitra. So we have to get outside and to that show our children the wonders of the world and teach them how to do it and to show them the unique nature of what Allah Ta'ala has created and to that spend time learning about different birds and different plants and so forth and so on. Uh, and it's incredible. It really is incredible once you kind of develop a liking for that. Um, and not just kind of going to the zoo, but like going deeper, where you really start learning more depth about Allah Ta'ala's creation. And like these books like about like the living trees and everything that we now know about the root systems and the ecosystem of trees and that they seem to almost be like intelligent beings, which are not. They're from the plant kingdom. 
But it's amazing that things that the more and more that's coming about, about what we know, about how they communicate with each other and all this type of stuff, that's amazing. And so I think that's, these are the type of things that we should be doing. Not letting our kids just play video games and um, that giving them that junk literature, which is like junk food. It does to the mind what junk food does to the physical body. This is what we really want. And in our schools as well, we definitely do not have a school system built on tefakkur. Is that th this is one of the most important components that needs to be there in our schools. And if they're not getting it in school, which is likely that they're not, or even in Sunday school, unfortunately, I'm telling you, this is an abandoned sunnah. Is that you could develop a whole pedagogy based upon tefakkur. And there's people that have. There was a lady in Jordan, I think she has a TED talk online somewhere. She has a whole that way of teaching that is, is based upon tefakkur. And imagine if you train a child from the time that they're young, then you become master reflectors. You can master the art of reflection, where you start making connections like very quickly. And then you start receiving openings at the spiritual level, which makes it even more wondrous. I think that's what we're trying to do with the Ghazali Children's Project. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's one of the aims. But Jazakallah Khair Sheikh, I think it would be good for a short dua if possible, inshallah. We ask our Lord Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us of all sins, ya Arhamur Rahmin, and change all of our past sins into good deeds. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, to preserve us, and to illuminate our hearts and make them radiant and to root us in the reality of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and to ground us in our faith and bless us to move up in the degrees of certitude Ya Arham Harim from Ilmul Yaqeen to Ayinul Yaqeen to Haqqul Yaqeen May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us to come to know him and to increase eternally in knowledge of him subhanahu wa ta'ala May Allah ta'ala fill our hearts with the love of him and the love of his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and to devote ourselves entirely to him and everything that is that we do and everything that is that we say Ya Arham Rahmin May we be sources of inspiration and upliftment for the people that are around Amen. us and be in service of his creation subhanahu wa ta'ala may Allah ta'ala give us openings and this ibadah of tafakkur and a state of contemplation and reflection ya arhamur rahmin may we move up in the degrees of the elect of those who are graced with this very blessed act of worship ya arhamur rahmin may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make everything we do be an act of devotion and to forgive us of all of our sins and to direct our hearts unto him and always bless us to remain humble and broken before him subhanahu wa ta'ala and with a feeling of absolute need may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring this deen to life in our hearts, Ya Rahman, to the hearts of those that are around us in our families, in our communities, Ya Allah. And we be sources of guidance for those that are around us and the people around us. Haste the sweetness of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. May we live and die upon those meanings and meet our Lord in the very best of states and the very best day of all being. The day that we meet our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala after a long life in his, obedience, in his obedience. And may the very last thing we say when we exit this dunya be La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam completely actualize its meanings inwardly and outwardly with a complete and perfect that meeting with the best of creation in the hereafter and drinking with the double hand and the hold and eternal togetherness with them forever in the hereafter.
Jazakallah khair, Sheikh. Thank you once again for traveling and sharing these wonderful insights from this uh, book. The book is available for, for you all to purchase. Uh, thanks uh, again to the Bradford Literature Festival for hosting this wonderful evening and for yourselves uh, for making your way uh, out from your lives and to make this such a wonderful majlis. May you all return home safely, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.